I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, made possible in part by Marie Sharp's Hot Sauce, hand-harvested, sustainably farmed, whole fruit and vegetables, certified, pesticide-free, and used within hours of picking, and by listeners like you. You can support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash theopenmind. I'm delighted to welcome back to The Open Mind, Shane Burley. He is author of Why We Fight, Essays on Fascism, Resistance, and Surviving the Apocalypse. Welcome back to the program, Shane. It's a pleasure to have you on again. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Shane, what essays do you think are most resonant, or if you had to name one specifically, at this moment when we've seen the beginning, possibly, of a new chapter in American life following the Trump administration, but still with the authoritarianism bubbling over and unaccounted for after the insurgency, the insurrection on January 6th. Yeah, and you know, I think it's actually the essay that I introduced the book with uh, called A Home at the End of the World, which is also the introduction, where I kind of survey what things were like. And I, I put it right when I was putting the book together, which was in the middle of the, these massive West Coast forest fires, which are particularly bad in Oregon. Now, I live in the city, but it was even within a few miles from me, um, as I think about 12% of the, the state was on fire. So there was basically smoke surrounding the city at the same time. There had been 100 days of sequential protests. And on top of that, the middle of the pandemic, you know, rising attacks from far-right vigilante groups. It was a scary time. And but what I kind of wrote about was this cultural pessimism or the sense of depression or this, this sense of doom that we we're kind of living with. But there was also a real burgeoning hope there because people were building solutions to how to deal with it. So out here and across the country, people are building these mutual aid networks to get people, you know, their prescriptions delivered to get them food during the pandemic, that kind of thing. Um, supporting people who lost their jobs and needed to pay rent or needed to, to pay for bills. Um, the protests was a really massive effort that happened all across the country with people coordinating at multiple levels, just showing a capacity that maybe people didn't realize was there before. And then kind of coming in through this year, yes, there is a lot of threats to those things. So there also is a new resiliency that I think this experience has uh, brought to the surface. It's always been there in some communities, and I think it's become more persistent and new generations have been raised in this. And so I, I think there's actually every reason to be hopeful. And that's what I started the book with. And I talk uh, really heavily about the, the Jewish messianic tradition of healing the world and thinking about um, our project as one of constantly trying to build something better out of our society and how that is the sort of vision that carries us through. Shane, since our last exchange on the open mind you've turned a corner uh you sound more optimistic perhaps cautiously optimistic but from where do you derive this hopefulness uh, because we do understand especially during the lead up to the inauguration the precariousness of American democracy and the fact that had the Republican party controlled the Congress, they would have been able to override the electoral college and the democratic results. So I think the cautious optimism, as you put it, comes from the fact that people are taking up the challenge 
of the situation and in really novel and personal ways. So I, I think a piece of this, and I don't want this to come across as though I don't think that we need to invest very deeply in the American democratic tradition or that we should work to save it. But I think people's sense of survival and continuity of communities and their flourishing has not is no longer built into the assumption that there's a permanent system of the American democratic project that will always be there to protect them as like the you know uh, neutral arbiter of human rights or something, because those things have become so tenuous. And instead, in a lot of ways, people have looked to other traditions in communities uh, to meet a lot of those community needs, like community organizations. In a lot of ways, it's even church groups that play a role in this, labor union revivals. There's a lot of kind of organizational ways that people are kind of meeting that challenge of how to support their communities, because it's been made very clear how tenuous the situation is. And I think that's increasingly important as as we head into areas of increasing volatility, ecological volatility, uh, the volatility of economic markets. I mean, we just watched like these kind of bizarre, almost Twilight Zone episodes of cryptocurrency exploding and contracting. It's a lot of volatility in the things that were thought to be permanent. And we can't expect that that situation is just going to erase now that a more stable person is in the White House, even if they are passing things like the PRO Act or, or other things that would be socially positive. So instead, I think what's happened here is that people are really determining the course of how they're going to approach these problems by looking at each other and trying to build real solutions. And I think by having that sense of innovation all the time, of having not just a reliance on these outside institutions, but taking it on ourselves and building community projects that protect each other. And that that right there is not just a solution to the problem. That is an entirely new social dynamic that, that kind of uh, presses itself against the systems that are failing now and shows that another world is possible. So I think there's a lot actually to be optimistic about in the ability uh, that has been shown by regular people to take charge in their communities. I don't want to overstate that. That doesn't, that doesn't determine anything that's going to happen, but it does show what's possible. And I think possibilities coming out of 2020 is what we need. Your last book, Fascism Today, What It Is and How to End It, your hopefulness, your cautious optimism, the resilience that you embody and express, it is in pursuit of abolishing fascism in America because certainly we've seen autocracies metastasize as a result of this pandemic and America being in the crosshairs of that transformation potentially from democracy to autocracy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anti-fascism, uh, the opposition to fascism is an essential piece because fascism rests at the, at the antithesis of what a vibrant, flourishing society would be. And so that's a necessity. But I think what people have discovered is that it's not kind of good enough to put things back to the status quo because fascism actually comes from this underlying crisis and historic marginalizations, colonialism, oppression, and things. So there's a lot uh, that's sort of riding underneath those insurgent movements that look to them uh, on things on the surface to be extraordinary, to be extra normal, but actually have a deep kind of historical role and continue to reemerge um, and are emerging on a global scale very seriously. So having a really strong sense of what, how to challenge those movements, how to undercut their legitimacy, how to stop them from forming, that's really important. But I think 
what also is going to be important is looking at what the underlying conditions are that created these problems in the first place and seeing that we're not going to be able to finally get to that challenge. We're not going to meet that challenge entirely until we look at how to actually under underskirt or I guess pull the, the, the rug out from under the conditions that form them, the inequalities, the, the structural inequities, the, uh, the instabilities that our society produces. We have to look at those as a piece of that project. And I think what we saw in 2020 is a lot of those movements actually collapsed in on each other in a shared struggle. The people that were confronting police violence were also talking about white vigilante violence. We're also talking about ecological destruction. They were also talking about mass evictions. It ended up being the same conversation. And I think in, in a kind of broad way, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but those, they will have some common solutions when people think about these problems as interrelated and therefore the solutions have to be as well. I do think that the consciousness reflects the systemic nature and the interconnected nature of these American dilemmas and our decades-long disconnect from income inequality, our aloofness to the rise and resurgence of white supremacy Having said that, Shane, you need systemic and systematic solutions prescribed for systemic and systematic ailments. And while the Biden administration certainly pressed the reset on scientific literacy and dignity and peace and reconciliation in the discourse, I don't see much by way of systemic and systematic solutions that are going to enable the country at the municipal level or the national level to enact and implement policies that are consistent with the consciousness that you're identifying. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know that it would actually be possible um, in the sort of confines of the systems that we have now. And I think that's part of why I was saying in the beginning that a lot of people aren't kind of resting simply on the limitations of the current system, but they're thinking outside of it. A good analogy for this is about the labor movement. And the labor movement historically had a really grand, big effect on the creation of social safety nets, not just here, but in Europe and in other countries, in the global South. Um, they changed a lot of massive uh, uh, state policies and things like that, but that was not the source of the labor movement's power. The labor movement's power was in workplaces, in pe real people's lives. And they didn't have just rely on the state, rely on the state either at the local level or at the federal level to be the arbiter of their success. Instead, it took place right in workplaces, confronting the employer directly and creating um, agreements that were able to, to lift people up in that way. And when, when people are advocating, for example, on the federal level, and you can get a lot of you know things done, you can get you know healthcare subsidies, you can get you know maybe free college if we're talking really progressive. There's a number of things that can happen, but during periods of austerity and periods of economic crisis that are pretty predetermined at this point, those things can get taken back. Austerity will pull back those things, and we saw, for example over the previous 25 years in Europe as basically what were called socialist governments in a lot of ways, like socialist parties, literally pulling back on all these state services, pulling back on the things that were won years and years because those victories existed just in the state itself. And so I think what's important about what the change that's happening now, and this is really true in, in generations I think that are younger than me, is that they're thinking about outside of those terms. How can we think about this, not just an advocacy of the state, and obviously I think pushing Biden on progressive policies is really important and, and it's going to have real effect 
people's lives. But how do you build organizations and social movements that have the ability to win things outside of that? That way, if there is a crisis, if there is a change in leadership, it doesn't always undermine the real gains. It's a question of how you consolidate those gains. And I think that's going to become much more diverse than the multitude. It's going to exist in community organizations and tenants unions all across the place that people are seeing those kind of struggles in their lives. The other obstacle to the you know, achieving the civil society you're describing um, when we think of fascism and resistance, the, the 22 midterm elections are upon us. And there's an entire political party in the United States that is fascistic in wanting to deny people voting rights. And, you know, we're, we're not seeing the kind of episodes of street violence that we did last summer, at least not yet at this stage in the pandemic, uh, which were protesting racial injustice and police brutality. And I would argue an extension of the Occupy Wall Street movement, um, income inequality and social inequities broadly. But that tension in American society hasn't really been resolved. You're describing ways at the local level in particular that it can begin to be resolved. But what do you think is now going to be the trajectory or or kind of the natural evolution or devolution of fascism and resistance, knowing where we are in our political climate at this moment? I mean, specifically, this question of what American fascism is going to look like over this next year, the threat of white supremacy and domestic terrorists. Um, what, what's your assessment of where that trajectory is moving? Well, I, I think that the first thing is that, unfortunately, we can expect what I call in the book uh, seemingly impulsive acts of violence. There's a pretty common trajectory. I talk about this in the last book. I talk about it in this book, um, that when uh, a far right, including open fascist, white nationalist social movements increase, um, they begin to believe that something is possible through their social movement apparatus. You know, they, they have, you know, civil, they have marches, they have rallies, they even might do political work. But when that starts to fail, like it has, that's when people engage in seemingly impulsive acts of violence. Basically, that's when they, they suddenly open fire at synagogues. That's when they suddenly take these sorts of nihilistic, um, explosively violent acts. What happened over 2020 in particular was that we, we watched a mass radicalization event that there is no precedent for in the form of QAnon and Stop the Steal and demasking and, and the kind of various interlocking webs of this. We have a really mass populace now who believe that the government has been captured by alien interests through a coup that are being controlled by satanic pedophiles that drink adrenochrome. Um, and that leads to a kind of self-traumatizing culture where 
people's response in a lot of those places may be a seemingly impulsive acts of violence. And so I am nervous for those things in 2021 and 2022. And I think that's a very real possibility. But I think this is also a question of what it means to politics on a global scale, where we see a collapsing center and some form of populism, whether it's right populism or what, what I think could probably fairly be called a left populism, like I'm talking about, a popular kind of leftist politic against inequality. That is the language in which people are now experiencing the crisis of their lives. And I don't see a, a return to a stable centrist discourse in any way. And so I do think that while there is reason to be hopeful in the ability of young people to build movements that see real social change, I don't know that that's going to be familiar to the kinds of democratic politics that a lot of us have grown up with and a lot of people hoped would be maintained after this um, sort of Trump years. So in that respect, you're not quite as cautiously optimistic. I'm cautiously optimistic about human beings' ability to build a better world. I don't know yet if that's going to look like the world we have now, and if that's going to include some of the structures that the American experiment were about. One of the things, Shane, that was most edifying in your first book, Fascism Today, was a catalog of terms associated with the new fascistic movement, neo-Confederate, and white supremacy and white supremacist lingo in the, in the lexicon of identifying online or in real life how these threats and forces manifest themselves. And I urge our listeners to check out not only your new book, but that book, Fascism Today, knowing that you are largely probably up to date still in understanding the lexicon from 2017 through the present, what has changed? Of course, anytime social media want to impose a a check, um, there is an attempt for the domestic terrorist element to beat the censors Mm -hmm. and to beat the checks so that they can still galvanize and organize through those mediums. How has the vocabulary changed since you wrote your book, Fascism Today, through the current book, Why We Fight. You know, the biggest change is that the formal white nationalist movement, which at the time, like we last spoke, was defined by the alt-right, has taken a lot of hits, both from kind of anti-fascist, anti-racist activists, and from kind of their own ineptitude, and also tech companies deplatforming. But what has actually radicalized further was the more kind of uh, diverse and diffuse social movement of Trump. Um, and so when I, you know, for example, I, I, you know, was a reporter, I covered lots of far right rallies. It used to be that we were able to kind of blend into the crowd. It was really easy to be there. And now they single you out. They attack journalists. It's incredibly dangerous at a lot of these places. And it's not just these formal white nationalist folks. It's people that used to be considered just kind of Beltway Republicans. There's been a radicalization effect. And in a lot of ways, the white nationalists had a stable ideology. You know, it was this 
kind of uh, putrid uh, white supremacist ideology, but they had a consensus uh, agreement on the world. What I'm walking into in a lot of these, like what, what sort of radicalized even further in 2020 is a very impulsive bunch of people willing to take action almost immediately. And so that in a lot of ways is actually the most violent situation to walk into. And so I, uh, you know, I think a lot of people traditionally assume that most of the violence would come from open neo-Nazi type organizations. And actually I think what we're seeing is that it's more of the Patriot militia uh, Trump base types that are actually willing to take violence in the current period. Final question. We know that Donald Trump is off Twitter now for the moment. We also know that the social companies in the wake of January 6th did something they refused, emphatically refused to do for six years, longer probably, the entirety of the 16 campaign and part of the Obama presidency. The, the language about uh, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, and the effort to conflate them with white supremacists or the insurrectionists, you know, that, that is a narrative that surely will continue to play out in right-wing media, specifically the sensationalistic, nativistic media. Is it important for the American people in order to advance as you are hoping with the cautious optimism that you are heralding, understand the fact that you have a political party that is within the arena of democracy and then a political party that wants to abandon, if not eliminate, the democracy. So the the pro-voting versus anti-voting contingents representing the Democratic and Republican Party. How important is it in thinking about that, averting that apocalypse, to understand the authoritarianism, autocracy, and fascism of the new Jim Crow Um, the folks in Texas and Georgia and Arizona and Pennsylvania that do not want certain people to vote, the the mantra of Antifa, it has been conflated with with the street violence in the the Northwest and in Oregon. But in reality, the people who are opposing those who would seek to uphold Jim Crow, right? Those are the people fighting fascism today. And the the whole debate around Antifa has has so lost the meaning of what it, what, you know, the, the sort of World War II idea of defeating fascism. I struggle to see your cautious optimism because I struggle to see the vocabulary that is calling out the the entirety of a Republican Party committed to denying people voting rights, maybe with the exception of the recent speech by Liz Cheney and some some of the statements that she's made along with those who voted for impeachment and and conviction. But 
the point being that we have so cheapened the anti-fascist idea by being involved in, in a, a debate with people who want to equate Antifa with you know, other domestic extremist elements, when in fact, there is a political party that is supporting fascism. Yeah, absolutely. And the Republican Party has no intention of undermining that shift. I, I think it's important, you know, there was a recently, I think about 100 um, Republican leaders that basically argued that they'll make a, new, a third party if, if, the, the, if GOP doesn't uh, admonish Trump and get rid of Trumpism. The reality is that the party is too far in the direction of Trump. That's where the energy is. I don't know that the party could ever rein that in and establish it. The sort of Republican consensus that was built by Buckley around National Review has broken down so completely that I don't know that they could bring it back. That being said, that party has the historic legacy of segregation on its hands, of, of, of Reagan's dismantling of all social safety minutes and attack on, uh, on um, union rights, uh, mass incarceration. They, there is a historical legacy there that leads to Trumpism. And so I don't know that there is, a, a, even a, with the, the party, a place to go back to that would maintain any sorts of kind of human dignity. I think now, though, it's the reality of it has become so blatant that it actually, I think, simplifies the narrative. So, yes, over 2020, especially, Antifa became the boogeyman for absolutely anything that the right didn't like. Um, all you know, forms of Black Lives Matter became Antifa. Uh, any kind of violence that happened, even if it had nothing to do with politics, was suddenly Antifa. All those things that became Antifa and we lost sight of what was actually happening here is that a far right that's capable of unimaginable violence, both contemporarily and historically, is taking over large sections of the government or a large base of voting, of uh, social movements, both in this country and in other countries. That's something that we need to have unity about. So I, but I think that, that the public has changed to a degree. My cautious optimism is not in our ability to shut down the Republican Party. Our, my cautious optimism is in the ability of us to organize ourselves to change the, the, the rules of the game entirely. And I think that that is the kind of optimism that we're going to see as these systems become less pliable, as the Republican Party attacks voting rights. You know, voting rights, we need to fight for, I mean, we need to fight absolutely openly and consistently for voting rights. But one thing that happens when they attack voting rights is people don't just become um, apathetic. They get involved in other ways. They actually get in the streets. And I think people are seeing now that when their rights are under attack, when the Republican Party is is going to try and undermine their basic basic access to health care food security and that kind of thing, people are starting to take action. And any of that apathy that was there because people didn't know what to do, that started to erode because what taking action has become a really common sense um, solution to problems now. So that's, I think, where the optimism has to be, is that we have the ability to build a new world. We have to do it with each other, though. We have to do it with each other, but deliberative processes is what ultimately holds that patchwork together in any kind of tangible way. Do you have a suggestion for how to translate that people power into tangible, endurable, legislative, you know, government reform? So there's two answers to that. One is that independent organizations that get see their gains, not just from government reform, I think is the most effective direct and sustainable way to see change in people's communities. 
But the second piece to that is that it's also the most effective, direct, and relatable way to change government policy. So, for example, if people want to address income inequality, I think right now the most effective thing to do is to support the labor movement and be involved in those organizing because that has the effect on pushing through, for example, the PRO Act at the federal level, and then it has the ability to raise standards in people's lives. I think that tenant organizations, that people who are renting um, and are seeing the crisis right now, working in their communities at the same time as pushing for reforms around tenant policy. Those things happen to happen simultaneously. Um, I, you know, if people uh, want to support progressive candidates and do that sort of thing, I think that's great. Um, but it's not going to be enough to sustain any change. The state itself always responds to on-the-ground social movements. This is something that was true, uh, FDR going forward, that the reality is that all those reforms we see, they don't just happen in the legislative arena. They don't happen through lobbying. They happen as a response to what's happening outside of those spaces. And so we should be thinking of those spaces as political spaces, that struggles in your workplace and in your housing and in your food insecurity, those are political struggles. And we need to meet them head on in those community spaces and use that as the model to pushing it for at a society-wide level. Shane Burley, author of the new book, Why We Fight, Essays on Fascism, Resistance, and Surviving the Apocalypse. Hey, I think you're doing a pretty decent job surviving the apocalypse. Your tune and your encouragement to stay upbeat are much appreciated. Thank you, Shane. Thanks so much for having me on.